For this unit on France Fanon and the film The Battle of Algiers, I'd like to give you some general context on the problem of empire. We've talked about imperialism in the context of World War I, and so for a moment I would like to step back and take a look through a wider lens, because I think that it's important to divide between, or to make a distinction between the early modern empires and modern imperialism, so we can think about what was distinctive about the modern period. Right, so you know, very briefly, looking backwards, I, I would distinguish the early modern European empires um, in a time period that runs from around 1500 to 1848. Right, those were the you know, Atlantic. So it's part of the Atlantic economy, and the foundation of it was the Caribbean sugar plantations. It right? started in Brazil and then worked its way up into the Caribbean, uh, with Haiti at its high point from the late 1600s into the 1700s as the most dynamic, most economically productive place on earth. Um, right, so, so when Europeans from you know, the late 18th century into the 19th century thought about imperialism, they were really thinking about sugar plantations. Right? They were thinking about mercantilism, the, the idea that wealth was fixed and that the point of colonial empires was to uh, you know, gather as much of it as you could to keep your neighbors from, uh, from getting their hands on it. Um, Right. And modern imperialism, I mean, th these dates are all you know, fairly fuzzy, but there was a real rush from the late 1800s, really from the 1880s, uh, and it runs for you know, the better part of a century until the early to mid-1960s. Right? So I would distinguish the early modern uh, empires you know, built on slavery and sugar production on the one hand from the, the modern imperialism that runs from the Berlin Conference, I would say, in 1884 until the independence of Algeria in 1962. Right? So if I really concentrate on this sort of second phase of modern imperialism, I want to talk briefly about what the various European powers were trying to achieve, what they, in fact, did achieve. Okay, so to uh, you know, before launching into those uh, sort of substantive detail, I want you to have a look at the second slide um, on the PowerPoint uh, material that I've uploaded to Blackboard, so that you can see the two dominant ways that historians and social scientists think of imperialism. Right, so these are scholarly approaches that remain very influential. Right. And so on the left-hand side of the slide, you'll see the sort of the Marxist and materialist camp who were represented most famously by Lenin and Hobson. Right? Lenin wrote a famous, famous pamphlet that called imperialism the highest form of capitalism. Right? So Lenin was directly influenced by Karl Marx. And you know, if you remember your Marx, uh, he thought that... Uh, Capitalists would, you know, would compete with one another. They would invest in machinery, in, in factories to produce more and more consumer goods until ultimately they produce more than people could buy. Uh, and so he, he thought there would be a series of crises of overproduction. So Lenin picks up on this idea that Marx only touches on and says, well, that would force European capitalists 
to compete for new markets. So first they would compete for markets, you know, at home within Europe, but gradually they would go go overseas, and that it was that competition for new resources and marks and markets. Uh, Lenin and there's a British socialist named John Hobson who who also wrote very influential work. Uh, they thought this drove modern imperialism, right? It was the sort of turbocharged modern capitalism, and it's you know unavoidable, unquenchable hunger to control markets and natural resources that, that drove imperialism. It was a very physical, very material process. It was about controlling resources and, and labor and ultimately people's bodies. Uh, right? And so I would distinguish that view of imperialism on the one hand from an ideological tradition that has to do with ideas, that has to do with thought, that argues that colonizing people's minds was actually the distinctive part of modern imperialism. Uh, and here, the two most influential figures are France Fanon, whom you should be reading, and Edward Said, who wrote a book in the 1970s called Orientalism. Uh, and in, in this, like the Orientalist tradition, uh, in drawing on Fanon, Said argued that really what makes imperialism distinct was the European effort to, uh, to describe, to categorize, to divide the world into sort of civilized and uncivilized between a sort of civilized West and an ori quote unquote oriental East. Um, uh, and that it was this particular European view and European anxieties about themselves that sort of played out in their uh, effort to define and understand the, the rest of the world. Okay. So th these are two very, very influential, um, schools of thought in terms of making sense of what's distinctive about um, modern imperialism that I think you'll find running through a great deal of um, your coursework. Okay, if I turned to the more properly you know, historical content um, and, and we go back to the 19th century, um, you know, most 19th century liberals, they wanted to promote free trade. They wanted to avoid suffering. They wanted to respect the individual to avoid government intervention. It sounds like they should have been resistant to empire. It sounds as though they should have wanted governments to avoid stepping in and planting the flag on foreign soil. Uh, and in fact, what you see in the early 1800s uh, is that there was, you know, especially for liberals and, and those you know, who wanted to move away from the old regime, they wanted to turn their back on uh, you know, pre-modern imperialism and slavery, uh, they actually argued that imperialism was a thing of the past, right? Um, and Yet, you know, over the course of the 19th century, it's the opposite that takes place, right? And so I want to take you through the major milestones in, in that process, right? So uh, first, we see the decline of formal empires where Spain and Portugal lose almost all of Latin America, right? And Spain holds on to Cuba and Puerto Rico, but in the 19th century, uh, the formerly great Spanish and Portuguese empires collapse. Britain and France, for their part, support local independence movements in the Middle East who are fighting against the, the Ottoman Empire. Uh, and, and yet, you know, as I say, in the middle decades of the 19th century, we have um, Great Britain really uh, you know, extending themselves in India, 
We have France going into Algeria and in a very violent process, uh, colonizing the, especially the coast and then moving into the interior. Uh, and you know, throughout the 19th century, European business and explorers end up um, traveling around the world, um, you know, planting their flags, claiming more and more territory. Right. So how how did this how did this process work? Um, well, you know, I'll talk a little bit more about Algeria and India in a moment. But in terms of the first Europeans who were looking outwards, who were spreading European influence, um, you know, one group that comes immediately to mind would be missionaries. We've got you know, missionaries had been active in Asia for, for hundreds of years, uh, and in the middle of the 19th century, they'd become uh, active in Africa, you know, Southeast Asia, spreading European ideas. Uh, it's actually the um, you know, European missionaries led the fight against slavery on the one hand, so against the sort of pre-modern forms of empire, and yet they're also implicated in the spread of European influence in the 19th century, which leads into modern imperialism. Another group I would um, you know, call to your attention would be naturalists and scientists like Charles, Charles Darwin. Right, if you think about his travels to the Galapagos uh, and his you know, collecting of fossils, his you know, effort to try to piece together the, the puzzle of, uh, of evolution, uh, Lord Stanley, I mean, a, a, any number of European explorers who would you know, write journals whose exploits were covered in the periodical press, as more Europeans were able to read, this became um, a very high-profile file activity, right? So, um, you know, exploration scientists, naturalists trying to catalog nature, trying to develop new medicines um, were very active. Um, and maybe the most important group would be, would be merchants, right? In terms of causal forces, bringing Europeans out uh, into the world, you know, we have to talk about trade. Uh, now, I think I've mentioned already that uh, the 1850s in particular saw global trade expand dramatically. Right? After the revolutions of 1848 in Europe, there were boom years. Uh, we can talk about the gold rush in California. We can talk about the development of the steam engine and steamships and the telegraph that made it possible to transport goods you know, on a vastly greater scale than had been possible before. Uh, this is a time period when the railroads are making it into the interior of the United States, but also in Europe, extending into Ukraine, in Egypt. Um, they're going to, you know, in India, uh, all of which is you know, creating conditions that increased global trade to an unprecedented degree, right? The, um, Global GMP doubles every 20 years from 1850 until 1930. So there's a huge expansion, um, but it's going to be uneven. So 1850s and 60s in particular saw a massive expansion. Uh, and Euro Europeans were no longer simply taking raw materials um, from tropical territories, but they were building infrastructure. They were building railroads in Africa. You can see my fourth slide, uh, you know, Cecil Rhodes, striding across the continent of, of Africa, promising to build a railroad from Cairo to Cape Town. 
right? This was sort of part of the colonizing impulse. Um, building ports, railways, bridges, telegraphs, all of this. Uh, and quite often what would happen would be that merchants would uh, negotiate contracts, they would work out business arrangements, uh, and run into trouble with local authorities, um, whether in Africa or Asia, and then call upon, uh, in the English case, the, the British government to come in uh, and protect them. Right. So in the first instance, there was this phase that's often referred to as informal empire, where businesses and, and merchants w- uh, would, would go first and the government would only come in after, after there was a problem. Um, so you know, protecting investments uh, was one way uh, that uh, you know, e- European governments ended up getting entangled overseas. Um, you know, before 1875, most territorial claims were limited. That is, if you look at the map of Africa and European influence, most of the European activity was along the coast until the 1870s, even 1880s. Right? The development of quinine, uh, which was an anti-malarial drug, uh, was hugely significant there, along with steamships uh, and machine guns. Right? So there's going to be a big push from the 1880s onwards to you know, plant European flags in the African interior in particular, but also around the world. Um, but you know, There are two places that I want to pause over for just a moment because they were the most important uh, imperial holdings for the two biggest imperial powers. Right? So that would be uh, Algeria for France uh, in the 1830s, uh, and then you know, especially after 1857 for the British in India. Okay, so if I start with France in 1830, there was an increasingly unpopular monarchy. Um, There was a restoration after the French Revolution. We've got a very conservative Bourbon monarchy that is increasingly unpopular uh, and that goes into France uh, in, in 1830 to try to hold on to, to, to power as a kind of diversion. Uh, the government promptly fell. It was replaced by a more liberal monarchy. Um, and uh, But the, the, the process of colonizing in Algeria continued from one monarchy to another. Later on, a republic replaces the, that second monarchy. Each of these different governments ended up you know, taking over the colonial project and extending it further. Okay, the point that I want to make about Algeria, the, the French in the mid-19th century in the 1830s saw Algeria as being fundamentally different, for example, from Haiti, uh, in the sense that the French political elite was trying to convince poor French workers uh, you know, that they were terribly concerned about the working classes uh, to move and create a colony of settlement. It is they wanted a kind of Thomas Jefferson style small farmer community to go and to colonize Algeria and to bring French civilization to North Africa, to extend French influence. Um, but they wanted it to be very different from the kind of slave plantations that had existed in Haiti. Now, Algeria does evolve along very different lines, but the French never ultimately succeeded in convincing significant numbers of poor white French people to travel to Algeria. So as we look forward, and I'll come back to this later on, um, you know, most of the white quote-unquote Europeans who end up settling in Algeria actually came from Italy, from Spain, from Malta, as opposed to from the, the French countryside. 
Okay, but in the Indian context, the British had been in India since the, the 17th century. Uh, in the middle of the 18th century, their, their you know, activity grew uh, more important. Okay, this is all, all prehistory for us. Um, the, the critical point I want to emphasize is that the British in India uh, in the 1600s, 1700s, into the middle of the, the 1800s, um, were led by a private company. That is, the, the British government was not directly involved with the colonization of India until the 19th century. What they did was the Crown chartered a company. It was a private company that was effectively deputized to go and to, to trade and to rule in the government's name. And there were periodic reviews, but ultimately this private company, the British East India Company, uh, you know, was a corporate entity that went and acted on, uh, on its own. Uh, their activity provoked you know, increasing resistance and sort of frustration on the part of you know, a wide range of Indians that exploded in 1857. Okay, and the immediate impetus, the spark that set off this enormous explosion in 1857, it's the so-called Sepoy Mutiny of 1857, uh, was the so-called um, Great Cartridge Controversy. So there, there were rumors circulating that the um, bullets or the cartridges that soldiers uh used to, to load their rifles, you, you'd have to bite off the end of the, the cartridge before loading it. And the, the rumors were circulating that the, those cartridges were greased either with pig fat uh, or with cow fat. And so either way, it was going to be polluting. It was going to be a, you know, a religious, violate a religious taboo, either for the Hindu majority or the Muslim community, uh, which was the largest religious minority in, in India. Uh, and so you know, there was a massive uprising that starts with the Indian soldiers serving in the British army, but it spreads. Uh, and it lasts for months and months. It spreads throughout India. Uh, and the British response was ferocious. Um, I mean, you can look and, and find pictures of gallows and of just the brutal repression of the 1857 mutiny. And the, the British response to this was not to, not to leave. Certainly, the, the response was to take control of the private company. Right. The, the response after 1857 was for the government to take a much more active rather than a less active role. So the government created a cabinet level position. This is the term, the, the Raj, the British Raj. This was the British government in India that's established after 1857 uh, and, and governs, governs India much more intensely bringing railroads, telegraphs, doctors, um, schools, right? English becomes the second language for millions and millions of, of people, right? This is, I think, the beginning of a process with Algeria and in India that is then going to spread. Now, we don't have you know, other colonies that are as central to the colonial imagination or that are governed as intensely as these two are. Uh, but they're the opening wedge, if I can use the term, of a process that would really get underway in the, the 1880s. Um, so you know, if you look down at the fifth slide, you'll see it's called the, the scramble for Africa. Um, and uh, you know, 
the, the scramble follows the, the Berlin Conference of 1884-85, uh, in which the European powers got together and basically you know, agreed to the terms to um, divide up their spheres of influence in Africa. Right? So you can see it's a massive French influence in West Africa, the British tended to, you know, their interest from Egypt to, to Sudan, down through Rhodesia to, to, to South Africa. Uh, you know, these are the two major, major colonial spheres of influence, but there is the you know, significant Belgian Congo. Uh, we've got, you know, Portugal and Angola and Mozambique. The Germans later on will, will get a toehold uh, in East Africa and Southwest Africa, right? This is a process that goes very, very quickly. Um, right in the space of a generation, we, we have European powers going into the African interior. It's the most dramatic example I can give you of um, sort of the expansion of European influence uh, in the late 19th century. Um, now, okay, uh, what really is is driving this? You know, if I go back to the discussion, my discussion at the outset, Marx would say that it's driven by the economy, and there certainly are business interests who are making vast amounts of money. Uh, and yet, you know, the economists who've stood back and looked at this period as a whole have pointed out that globally, sort of on the whole, uh, imperialism tended not to be an economic windfall, that it tended to cost European uh, economies more than it gave to them. In particular, what it did was it propped up very influential, very connected, but not necessarily cutting edge or profitable firms at the expense of younger, upstart, competitive firms. Um, Well, and there have been a range of um, other possible explanations Loaded, whether it was to provide an outlet for younger sons, whether this was a way for European powers to compete with one another uh, without actually going to war. Um, uh, you know, th- this is you know, one, one school of thought. Um, there is the Fanon and uh, Said view that European ideas themselves are inherently expansionary, that the the drive to know, to study, to understand, ultimately to, to categorize and to place peoples and countries everywhere around the world uh, on a single grid, ultimately is what drew Europeans outwards. Um, Okay, I mean, th- these are often contradictory and conflicting arguments that uh, I want to underscore for you so that you're aware of them. Um, you know, whether or not you, you think the, the enlightenment and science actually leads to imperialism or not uh, is something that we can talk about in the discussion sessions. Okay, in, in political terms, what ends up happening is we, this is the beginning of the end of the Vienna settlement. I guess the, I've got a slide, it's the third slide for the key players in Vienna. Uh, remember, the Vienna settlement came at the end of the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars, and it set up a balance of power system that was designed to, uh, to keep the peace, to keep any particular power from taking over the way that Napoleon had. Uh, and so what we we see quite strikingly in the late 19th century is Europeans competing with one another for influence, especially in Africa, but also in Asia. Uh, and so if you look at the sixth and the seventh slide, you see the British Empire, which is 
usually colored in red. The, the famous saying was that the sun never set on the British Empire. So you can see this, I, I think, represents uh, you know, the high point of, of British influence. And the, the map is from the 1920s, but the, uh, you know, the, the spread of, of British influence is really at its high point by the late 19th. Uh, and if you go down to the seventh slide, the French Empire is sort of the, the second or the uh, leading European empire. The, its holdings aren't nearly as great, but yet you can see they are quite extensive running from the South Pacific to to Vietnam, to Madagascar, and this massive, massive chunk of Western Africa from Algeria down into the tropical rainforest zone. Um, during World War I, uh, France in particular brought Asian and especially African soldiers to fight for France. If you Look at the key terms. Those are the the tirailleurs senegalais, tirailleurs uh, being the Senegalese sharpshooters. Not all of whom came from Senegal. Um, so you know there were about five hundred thousand colonial troops, another two hundred thousand workers from the empire that France brought to the European mainland. Um, and the the British, for their part, recruited a million. Indian soldiers, and, and I've, there's an interesting, I think, important contrast between the French who brought these colonial soldier, soldiers and workers uh, to the European mainland. Uh, African soldiers fought in all of the most important battles of World War I. Uh, the British, on, on the other hand, were terrified of bringing non-white soldiers to the European mainland. And so the Indian soldiers fought overwhelmingly uh, in the Middle East. Uh, you know, they fought at Gallipoli, they fought in East Africa, they fought in the, the Sinai campaign. Right? So this reinforces a sense for European leaders that they depend on their colonies. And so this relationship, um, you know, is, you know, evolved quite strikingly over the course of the First World War. Um, you know, both the British and the French recruited soldiers by telling them that they would gain benefits in return. Now, there was the hint, at least, of the promise of citizenship that got floated uh, and then taken away um, after, the, after the war was over. Right. So uh, after the war in France, there was massive pressure from colonial settlers, especially Algerian settlers, to, to close the borders. Uh, and yet the, the government refused. They were not able completely to, to close the borders. Okay, so again, moving down through my slides, you'll see slide eight uh, is uh, you know rep represents um, West African soldiers at a Bastille Day celebration during World War One. Slide nine, you can see the Indian troops building railways um, during the, the Middle Eastern campaigns. Um, slide ten, this comes from the interwar years from an advertisement or it was an article in the police union for the, the Paris police. And, and you see the, represent, the representation of a job placement office in French uh, and in Arabic. Um, and the text says that this office is an administrator, is you know, racist and paternalist as can be. Uh, the text uh, mentions an administration that has to be the mother and father for its colonial subjects. And then you know, in quotes down at the bottom, we see the author making fun of of an Algerian accent. Instead of bureau with a U, it's bureau with an I. Um, 
So you know, there's a very heavy-handed mix of paternalism and racism. And yet, you know, as we look down uh, to the next slide, slide 11, this is a Franco-Muslim hospital that opened in the Paris equivalent of the South Bronx, sort of the northeastern sub working-class suburbs, um, that accepted only Muslim patients. And it opened its doors in the middle of the Great Depression. And so there is this very uneasy, heavy-handed mix of paternalism and racism, but also a sense of dependence or mutual dependence that emerges by the, the 1930s. And you can see in, in the, the, the posters that follow from colonial expositions, the way, especially for France, that is being shouldered aside by Germany in a European context, in economic terms, is relying on its empire for, for you know, substantial prestige. Um, right, and you can see whether it's the colonial exposition of 1931, um, uh, you know, th these kinds of, of representations as really being central um, to, to, to French politics and to, to French culture. Okay, but these promises that the, the British and the French made during World War I really turbocharged uh, anti-colonial resistance, which was beginning bef before the war, but develops much more widely afterwards. Right? So the, the first place I would point you to that sees an organized um, uh, you know, political party you know, demanding rights for colonial subjects would be the Indian National Congress. It was founded in 1885, uh, and it's dominated by doctors, by lawyers, and uh, indigenous property holders uh, that was pushing for, for greater influence of, um, of elites. Right? The Indian National Congress was really quite concerned uh, to, you know, to defend the rights of private property, but for those educated Indians, they thought that they deserved uh, a greater say in governing their, their own affairs. Right? Um, so politically, it was a very sort of gradualist program, um, but it was pushing for, for concessions. Um, you know, the next... The next major organized nationalist opposition to a European colonizer came in French Indochina, or today's Vietnam, um, where you get an organized uh, political resistance, 1880s, really in the, the 1890s, but it's much more radical than the Indian National Congress. Um, right, And the, the leader here, you've probably heard of Ho Chi Minh, his name, uh, at the time was Nguyen the Patriot, um, Nguyen I Kwok, um, uh, you know, who, who lived as a photographic assistant in Paris before the war um, and the, drove the French crazy. They couldn't figure out his, his real name. Um, but he becomes a, you know, a lightning rod at the Versailles Conference after World War I when he asks the uh, American Foreign Secretary, the Secretary of State, Lansing, uh, he, he writes a memo from the Annamite people, which is the province uh, he, he's representing, uh, and he calls out Woodrow Wilson for his hypocrisy. Right? He says national self-determination sounds like a wonderful, wonderful idea. The Vietnamese people would like it too. And so and this is you know, one of the most influential documents of uh, sort of colonial resistance of the early 20th century. Uh, and of course, the French get embroiled in a war in, in Vietnam uh, in the immediate aftermath of World War II. 
right? During World War II, the French colony in Indochina is occupied by the Japanese. The French come back uh, in 1945, and very quickly, they're at war with the Viet Minh. Uh, led by Ho Chi Minh, uh, and the French lose in a humiliating defeat in the Battle of Dien Bien Phu in 1954. Right? So this is going to set the stage for the Al- Algerian Revolution because the French, having been humiliated in World War II, having been humiliated again by the Vietnamese um, uh, in their Vietnam War, which ends in 1954, vowed not to lose their most cherished, their most valuable, their richest colonial territory, so rich that in fact, or so intimately connected to France that actually, technically, as a legal matter, Algeria was not a colony. It had been incorporated into the French mainland in legal terms in um, 1848. Uh, so Algeria is different from the various other French colonies in that it legally it was part of the mainland. And there is this important term that you should all know about called settler colonialism. Right? So Algeria was different in that there were a million Europeans, roughly 8 million um, Muslims and Jews, mostly Muslims, there are a couple hundred thousand Jews uh, and seven million plus Muslims uh, in Algeria, but there were a million Europeans who could vote and they voted for the French parliament. Uh, they, you know, they sent representatives uh, and they had a disproportionate influence in French politics. Right? So it took much longer for organized opposition to emerge in Algeria than in India or Indochina because the settler population uh, so ferociously repressed it. Right. And, and when an anti-colonial movement did emerge in Algeria, it tended to be smaller. It tended to be fragmented. Uh, okay, so you know, very quickly, um, you know, I, I mentioned that there were one million Europeans. There are roughly eight million non-Europeans. So Jews made up maybe two percent of the Algerian population overall. They tended to live in cities, so Jews are maybe 7% in the cities. Uh, and Jews had been naturalized, that is, they had been granted French citizenship in 1870. Okay, looking at the, the Muslim population, uh, it's divided between an Arab majority and a Berber-speaking minority. Um, so, you know, as in India, where English was the second language that made it possible for a nationalist community uh, to to emerge, where people spoke you know, many different languages as their first language, uh, but English was a was the second language uh, in in France too. You know, even at the height of the revolution, the Algerian revolutionaries spoke to each other for the most part in French to avoid regional distinctions, right? To avoid the distinctions between Arabic and and Berber. Um, Okay, so if I look down at the slides and you look at the map of Algeria, slide 17, uh, you'll see the capital city, Algiers, up on the coast. And the the three major cities in Algeria were all up on the coast. And this is where the vast majority of Europeans lived. uh, And they lived in segregated cities. So the French in the 1830s and 40s forcibly expelled uh, the, the Muslims from the, the coastal cities. Uh, and what you see is you see a sort of a band of green along the coast, and immediately behind the coast, there are mountains, these you know, fairly high mountains with a plateau range known as the, the high plateau. And on the other side of the high plateau, there is the Sahara, which is very sparsely 
populated. And what the French had done, as I say, is they had expelled the Muslim population from the cities. Uh, you know, some of them worked in farms uh, along the coast. Otherwise, they had been pushed back to the to the high plateau. Uh, but so that when you see the representations uh, in the film, Algiers, for example, is a European city. Muslims live almost exclusively in the Kasbah, which you can see in slide 18. This is the old Turkish center of the city and sort of the highlands looking down uh, towards, the, towards the port and the, the Mediterranean. So the, the Muslim population was segregated, literally squashed together in this small neighborhood, which uh, had devastating public health consequences at the time. Um, but uh, you know, in, in terms of the sort of the chronology, or first with the geography, we've got cities on the coast versus the high plateaus and the Sahara. Uh, so I, I've been mentioning the film takes place in Algiers, which is really a, a European city, sort of back and forth between the European uh, neighborhoods and the Muslim quarter. Uh, in terms of chronology, I mentioned the French go in in 1830. They annex Algeria, so Algeria is legally part of France from 1848. Uh, in 1870, civilians, that is especially the Algerian settlers, take over um, from the, the military. And you know, we could make a very rough analogy between Algeria and uh, in France and the Deep South in the United States, which is part of the federal union, but where not everybody gets to vote, where there is, you know, there are you know, racist discriminatory laws, you know, that sort of parallel, I, I wouldn't want to push it too far, but um, there, there is something to that kind of uh, equivalence. Uh, you know, the French in Algeria refused to naturalize uh, Algerian Muslims in particular, um, you know, pointing out that you know, Muslims who followed uh, Sharia law uh, should not be expected to follow the French civil code in, in terms of marriage, in terms of inheritance, in terms of other legal traditions. So they were posing as tolerant and pluralistic, but using it to exclude Muslims. Um, I mean, for, for me, there's a, a particularly striking group of elite Muslims who convert to Catholicism and ask to be naturalized, and the French reject them too. Um, okay, so, so very briefly to, to wrap this up, the Algerian War runs from 1954 to 1962, and it was the bloodiest war of decolonization. Right. This was France's version of um, Vietnam, or the Algerian War was for the French, what the Vietnam War was to the United States, where the military never loses a firefight but ends up losing the, the war. In particular, in the Algerian case, because of the ability of the, the, the rebels, the FLN, um, to cultivate international opinion through the United Nations and also to appeal to the United States to apply pressure to France, uh, which was largely dependent on martial money during the Cold War, to, to pull back. Okay, so uh, just, you know, very, very briefly here, the leading group of Algerian nationalists is the National Liberation Front. Okay, the acronym is FLN. Uh, and when the war starts in 1954, they are a small minority, right? Um, so the Algerian War starts in 1954. It's against the French, but it was also uh, an Algerian civil war for the first couple of years with the FLN waging a brutal, brutal campaigns on rival nationalists. You will not see that in the film. 
Um, but one of the things that I want you to pay careful attention to as you watch the film is the relationship between the FLN and ordinary Algerians. Right? The FLN claims to speak on behalf of all Algerians, but they were never elected, at least not before 1962. And so I want you to focus on how that, that process works. Okay, The Battle of Algiers itself runs from June to October 1957, and it was rather marginal to the larger war. That is, most of the fighting took place in the Algerian countryside. This is sort of one episode in the larger war that the Algerians actually lose. And yet, um, you know, this was the, the episode that, that Pontecorvo seized on um, to, you know, to, to make this quite a documentary, but this historical film. Um, and so, you know, as you watch the film, I, I'd like you to uh, you know, think in particular, why does the violence spin out of control? Uh, I'd like you to think about what does it mean to win in this kind of context? Uh, and, and to contrast, what role does, does violence play overall? If, if you can think about the way that the director shows violence and its effects and compare it to the reading. Um, and, and finally, uh, you know, the last point that I would like you to think about is to think about the relationship between colonizer and colonized and to think about how the director represents them. Uh, does he present all of the colonizers as being the same or can we break down the, the, the French population into different subgroups? And by the same token, I'd like you to think about the Algerian side uh, and think about the relationship between the FLN and ordinary Algerians. Thank mm -hmm. you.